0: Hello friends and listeners. Welcome back to the Thoth Hermes Podcast and its new episode. Today is Sunday, the 24th of May, 2020, and this is episode 21 of this season 4. That we are gonna conclude at the end of the month of June with episode 24, then and We will start our new season five in July. Right. Last week, uh, I hope you were missing me. I took a break of one week. It really did me good to have a few days off um, from different things. Not only the podcast, of course. I also have a professional life, believe it or not. (laughs) Okay. And uh, I'm really glad to be back now. And I'm glad that you're back well if it's the first time that you're here on the podcast it is a pleasure for me that you found your way to us here well today's guest on this show is lawrence caruana lawrence caruana is a great visual artist and also very much involved, especially into Gnosticism, uh, but in all kinds of esoteric work. And that's why this week's episode is called Gnosticism and Visionary Art. Why visionary art and what visionary art is, we are going to talk about this at length in a minute. For the moment, I would like to tell you a few things, of course, to tell you where you can find the Thought Hermes podcast if you just happen to stumble across it. Well, on all major podcast outlets, of course, but also on the website, com. That dot com. There you will find all episodes so far. It's now 62 episodes that you can find there. So if you haven't heard them all, you have a lot of work to do. And also on the website, you will be finding all the show notes to those episodes and this might be really interesting for you especially in today's episode again i'll tell you in a minute why i think show notes are especially important for today also you can give me feedback and i really like feedback feedback comes from you listeners to me over email, which is info at but also from the website, because there is a special voicemail button that you can use to send me a voicemail. I like voicemails. And also, there is a contact form, of course, to send me just a regular message. The other possibility is to go on Facebook or Twitter, where you also find all kinds of information on us, and use the message function there to send me something you would like to tell me. I always like to get input about n- new ideas that you might have for the show. Maybe criticism, but also praise, of course. It's always great to have all of that from you. Also, you should note that I'm always interested in getting some music for the show because uh, I like to play music. I always play music during the shows and... Especially lately, we have had a few artists that came up to me and sent me their pieces. And there is also one today that you are going to hear. And I'm always excited to get that. Um, Right, and then, of course, there is also that famous Patreon button there. Yes, guys, we need you to be patrons of this show. And I thank everyone who has already subscribed to be a patron We are up to 34 now, which is great. We started at only eight back in March, if you remember. Um, But it's still only 34 out of 2500 listeners per week. So please, a few more of you. uh, And this would be really great. And thanks to all of them who are already supporting the Thought Hermes podcast with their contribution. This is really our lifeline. And it's great that you do that. Thank you so much. Also, if you prefer not being a regular patron, but if you prefer to just do a one-off donation, some of you have done that as well, and I thank them also heartily. Um, You can also do that also on the website. You will find the donate button, which is for a one-off donation that is always helpful. Okay, guys, I told you about some music just a few moments ago. And um, well, this episode is a bit special um, because, as I said, Lawrence Caruana is going to be our guest. He is an artist, a visual artist. It is not always easy to talk about visual arts on a podcast, but uh, I think we managed quite well. Um, and I thought as we are talking about the visual arts as an art form that is also very much used in the esoteric and occult worlds, also music is and uh, I wanted to give a bit more room to music today than usual. More room meaning not more pieces, but maybe a bit longer pieces, they are about 6-7 minutes each today and I hope you will like that and all three of them are really related to what we all love, to occultism, to esotericism, etc. So three a bit longer and three a bit different, all three very different pieces. Um, If you would like to jump from one to the next or if you find the music too long, well, what you can always do, um, you can use the chapter marks which are on those podcasts because they make you jump to the beginning of the interview, the beginning of the second part of the interview and of course also to the music pieces. And I hope your podcast player does support Chapter Marks. Um, By the way, uh, if you could give me some feedback how they work, because I think they work nicely, but I have never actually heard from any of you, if you like, those ideas about Chapter Marks. So if you would let me know, that would be not only nice, but also helpful to know. Okay, great. So, well, let's play some music then. Um, The first piece is something very special because it has been written by one of our listeners called David. And uh, David, he wrote a piece called Thoth Hermes. Yes, it's Thoth Hermes, that piece, that is really... Written especially not only for this podcast but also um inspired by our podcast. And I'm really I'm really very excited that he did that. Actually, it's Thoth Hermes 2, the second version of that piece that we're gonna play. And it is electronic trance electronic dance music that he that he is uh, that he has composed for us he is using a very special um, a very special means to do that a quick explanation he has used three separate forms with their 10 knots and put an, a musical note on each of those knots and then the program runs through all possibilities on those paths on the sephirot and that way Uh, different melodies are created so that's a really exciting way to do it if you're not only liking what you're going to hear in a sec but also would like to know more about it um, there is also now a youtube version of that piece of music online i will put the link of the youtube file of the youtube uh, video file on the show notes and one more good reason to go and see the show notes because it's really exciting to see also how the program um, produces this music by walking or by passing on the path of the Sephirot. Quite exciting. Thank you really very much, David. David, having done this music and David goes also by his alias Mr. Pepino on YouTube. So, it's really something you should look up. And for the moment now, we are just going to lean back and listen to that piece. By the name, I'm still excited to announce that a musical piece composed and inspired by and for Thoth Hermes. And the name of the piece is Thoth Hermes. Enjoy. mm Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Thoth Hermes, composed by Mr. Pepino, whose real name is David and who has written this piece, especially for the Thoth Hermes podcast and inspired by the Thoth Hermes podcast. Really exciting. Thank you once again, David. Okay, Lawrence Caruana. Lawrence, he is today's guest. He is Canadian. Uh, but he used to live uh, in Vienna for the last seven years. And that's where I also met him in my town. It's, I think, the first time that I'm proposing someone for to you who I met here in Vienna in person. And, um, well, we didn't meet in person to do the interview because it was during those weeks now easier, of course, not to meet in person, but to do the interview as usual via the Internet. But I have seen his work and I have talked to him also in person several times. And um, I really find him an interesting and exciting artist. His art, which is called visionary art, that's the art form he represents, is very much inspired uh, by the occult arts, by esoteric arts, and by expanding mind with them and creating the art that he does um, as I said in the intro it is not always easy to talk about arts but it was really easy to talk to Lawrence about it and uh, with this interview we conclude a little uh, almost a little cycle about inspiration and arts and occultism because when you remember Rachel Pollack who was talking to us about being inspired and um, through the tarot in her her art form which is writing then we had in our last episode um Hagen von Trollien who is a great artist and who is also or used to be but still is a very active occultist in the chaos in magic department that nowadays in others so he also has a very strong link beca- between his art and the occult and today with Lawrence we yet go another way, because Lawrence is very much inspired by Gnosticism, he has also written books about that, and he has given a great talk uh, on Gnosticism, which is a whole piece in its own, I think it's more than one hour, Uh, uh, also a YouTube um, video that you can see where he explains Gnosticism and his view on Gnosticism in a very nice way. So I'll so we'll put that link into the show notes, so plenty of things to see in the show notes today, because uh, if you're interested, I think it's really worth it. Um, Also you should really go and look at the images that we are going to even talk about partly but that are inspired by the way that uh, Lawrence does his art and of course. Talking about art is nice, but you should also have a look at them. There are one or two examples that I will put in the show notes, but also there, I will put the link to Lawrence's website, and I think it's almost a must to go and see those if you're really interested in what we are talking about today. right, so we're talking about gnosticism. we are talking about how he uh awoke, so to speak, how dreams caused him to start being interested in the occult. But then also later on we will find out that of course, like most of us, he was already at a very young age inspired by happenings in his life that drove him to get interested in the occult world and in in the art that he then later started to produce himself. Also. Fantastic realism is a term that's going to play an important role. And um, that's something here in Austria and, and also in big parts of Europe we have heard a lot about if we are interested in art. And fantastic realism is maybe something that you, if you have not heard about it and are interested in the link between the occult and um. The arts, then you should maybe have a look on Wikipedia or wherever and find out more about it. As always uh, at about 30 minutes into the interview, 33 this time to be precise, we are going to make a musical break and as I said this time maybe the musical break will be a little longer than you're used to, a bit of a longer piece and I'll tell you more about it when we are there. But for the moment, Gnosticism and Visionary Art I'm gonna talk about this to Lawrence Caruana. Here comes the interview. And my guest tonight on the Thothermit Podcast is Lawrence Caruana. And Lawrence, good evening. Nice to have you here on the Thothermit Podcast. And it's an honor for me to be here. Thank you, Rudolf. Well, thank you. Well, I have to explain our listeners a little bit um, how I came across you, because it's one was one of those coincidences. Actually, Lawrence, we're going to hear more about that in a minute. He is, uh, he is from far away. Let's put it that way. He, he, he will tell us from where he is, far away, speaking from Vienna, where I live. But actually, um, he is at the moment still in Vienna. And I came across him because on YouTube, when I sometimes do my researches, I found a highly interesting. Uh, talk that he did um, about Gnosticism. And that's how I first came across his ideas and his thoughts. And then I continued my search, continued my search and found out that that guy actually was living in Vienna. And not only that, that he also a great, a great institution here about an arts institution. We're going to hear about that a little bit more because the arts are going to be a big part of our talk tonight. And um, uh, that's how we even met. Now, today we do not do this live. We're not sitting in a cafe uh, across from each other as we might have preferred. But uh, well, given all those kinds of situations happening at the moment, we are still doing this via the Internet. But actually, he is very close here in Vienna, still at the moment. And um, so I'm really happy to have you on here tonight, Lawrence. So I said you were going to talk to us about your, your background a little bit and how you became the artist that you are, how you became also the searcher and interested in the Western esoteric tradition and how this influences your art and your work and all of this. But let's start at the beginning. How did it happen that you became the Lawrence Caruana that you are today in regards to all those questions?
1: You would like to know a little bit about the path I've taken
0: to yeah, get absolutely. To where I am. But but also, where did you have your first encounters of uh, with with uh, with um, the visual visionary art, as you call it? How do you have your first encounters with Gnosticism, with the esoteric background that also influences your art?
1: Mm-hmm. I guess I would begin answering that question by saying that as a searcher i'm someone who always looked closely at the messages that came to me and messages come through dreams they come through my reading and it was really by taking my own dreams quite seriously that i started to receive indications of the path that i should take through life Uh, actually, in my 20s, it was a series of nightmares of a derelict. And I was very frightened by this this fellow who would always attack me in my dreams. But (laughs) following a very Jungian kind of approach to understanding my dreams, I decided that if I was afraid of this derelict or wanderer, then I should become him. So... Even though I was born in Toronto and raised in Toronto, I studied philosophy at the University of Toronto. I decided that once I had finished my bachelor's degree, I would leave everything behind and start wandering. And Europe became the place of my wanderings. Mm -hmm. Actually, after backpacking through Europe for three months, I... Realized that the city which had the greatest impact on me during those travels was Vienna. And so since I was always fascinated by painting as a child and always wanted to learn painting, I decided to come to Vienna for a year. This was in 1989, 1990 and study painting in Vienna. So that's what I did. It's. Kind of surprising for me now because i realized that was 30 years ago that i came to this city and spent a year here after that year i then decided to travel a bit further through europe and since my background is maltese i spent about a year and a half on the city of malta after that i moved up to munich and spent three years in munich and it was really i think during the period in munich that i had my first spiritual experiences that changed my whole perspective on life and uh, it really was a mystical experience in the sense that i experienced divinity as a oneness and this left me with many questions about this was totally outside of the definition of divinity or God, which had been given to me through my Catholic upbringing, for example, where you have God the Father. Um, And that really set me on the Gnostic path, because the Gnostics are the ones who approach divinity as this fundamental oneness, the source of all existence, the unified source of all existence. And the cosmos itself is like an emanation or a a graduated series of emanations from the one. And the entire cosmos becomes like a mirror around this divinity in which it sees itself reflected. And that Gnostic uh, vision of divinity is what resonated so deeply with me, I guess, because of the mystical experiences that I had, it seemed as if this described absolutely what it was, that I was a particle of divinity and the divinity was just pure light, pure consciousness, pure knowledge or knowing. And so uh, experiencing myself as a reflection of the divine in this way. And indeed, the entire cosmos was like a multifaceted reflection, but all unified at its core, at its source. So that was really the experience uh, in Munich that set me on my path. And I will just mention that uh, I continued to wander, but I met my life partner, Florence, uh, who's a French woman in Munich at that time, just, uh, I would say a few months after having this experience. And so all the conflicts, all the, the, the difficulties and darkness that I had in my life up to that point seemed to get suddenly resolved. And I've pretty much been even though my wife and I, we've lived in different countries and done different things together, we've managed to build a life together since that time. So uh, the age of 33 was a real turning point in my life, both in terms of my worldview and in terms of my my personal life as well.
0: as opposed to many other people who I meet and who who I speak on the podcast here, and probably also you have made that same experience, um, many of them would say they've had their first encounter or revelation or idea, whatever, about that at a very early age, right? And in your case, it seems to have happened uh, much later now. Do you think this is because, well, it just was like that or is it because up to then for whatever reason those things remained hidden from you but were always part of you even your painting um i mean do correct me if i understand that wrongly but i i don't get the impression that you were that you knew would become a painter and artist at age 12, right? But you'd rather first do your philosophy studies and then found out that another past was really yours. So how do you analyze that now with hindsight? Why why was it that late? Or do you not know? Or do you have an idea what happened before?
1: Mm-hmm. I think that... Uh Another important experience in my life, I, I tend to look at the time of my 20s, when I was in my 20s, as a fairly dark period. As I said, I did my philosophy studies, but it wasn't very satisfying. I was left more with questions than answers. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned, I was turning to dreams for a lot of the answers. And one particular dream just presented me with a painting. And I spent quite a few years making that painting, struggling to make that painting, because I was teaching myself how to paint in these classical techniques of oils and varnish
0: and so on. At the time already, so when you had those dreams.
1: When I had in my 20s, yes. Yes. And uh, really it was this painting which uh, people can look up and find. It's called Christ Alchemist, where I dreamt of the painting. I saw the painting very clearly in my dream. And now it was just a question of how to get that vision, that image from a dream into physical form as a painting. And that's what took me many years. Now, I, I mentioned that painting because it shows basically myself as a Christ like figure. And uh, beneath me, there's a kind of an altar with a chalice and the chalice has got a strange shape because it's like a vast hermeticum as well as like a chalice Mm -hmm. and in this vast hermeticum chalice is a child a glowing child a child glowing with light that was such a powerful image that i needed to understand what it meant and it was because of that dream and and the painting that resulted that i started to take a path to my own childhood memories and make a concentrated effort to revive my childhood memories and find out who i was as a child and and by doing that i could see that there was a lot of magic we all of course know that but to rediscover the playful acts that i did as a child which were truly magical and remember them and find the the power of the the significance of doing these acts. I think that's how I discovered that as a child, I was actually mystical, but not that I had any sense of divinity empowering me or whatever I was brought up, as I said, in a Catholic tradition. And I think Catholicism masked the, the esoteric and magical and the uh, mystical side to my understanding of divinity i I Mm -hmm. just believed the church was basically right and true in everything it taught us and i respectfully followed everything it taught but it didn't actually give me any any profound sense of uh participation with a higher world until as we just said until i was 33 years of Mm -hmm. age
0: Mm hmm. I have that painting now in front of me. Thanks to the Internet, of course, those things are always possible and you have it on your website. And of course, I would invite everyone who is following the conversation maybe to also get on your website, Lawrence, or maybe also on the Source Hermann's website, where you can find that image in the show notes. And um, when I look at it here, I see what you just uh, explained. Uh, and I see also a lot, a lot of symbolism, um, like uh, hermetic symbolism, like alchemistic symbolism, as you just mentioned yourself. uh, but The phoenix to the left or the mercury sign on the cross to the right uh, with sun and moon and the the two snakes uh, winding around uh, around the hermit, the hermetic um, symbol. Um, So, but that was at the point when you would have just started into that world. Am I right? Or uh, so? Why is it also present? Also the, the the rose, the five leaf, uh, the five leaves of the rose in the middle on on the on the plate in the in the center, the heart plate of of the Christ figure. So how did that? How did it all get there in your mind and on the, pa- in the in your mind and on the and on the on the canvas? Yeah, uh,
1: I should make it clear that in the dream there were many elements that I could see very clearly in the dream, such as the way the hands are positioned and the, mm-hmm. the cowl of the monk and the, the church and the uh, moon in the background, all, all of those things were seen very clearly. Even the name above uh, Christ alchemist I saw mm-hmm. in the dream, but the details that you mentioned really came about then when I, cause I, at the, at that time, I didn't understand alchemy at all. I, I had just seen glimpses of it. And so you can see the fascination of discovering these symbols for the first time, discovering the caduceus and discovering the Ouroboros on the left, the strange. It's a griffin, actually. So a uh,
0: griffin, not a phoenix,
1: yes. Yeah, it. eagle and combination of eagle and lion has his tail and his, his serpentine tail in his mouth all of these and also the the rows within rows uh on uh, at the very center of the painting and uh that's what happened with that particular painting is uh i only started to understand the imagery much later in my life and it wasn't just a question of understanding it was a question of performing meditations on the painting and discovering that the painting could become a doorway into visionary worlds. And the symbols became these openings also into archaic knowledge and understanding. So... At first, I just had to make the painting. That was a huge step for me in my life Mm to to discover the alchemy of, of the materials of the oil and varnish. But after I had made it, it became an entire different journey because I was then entering through the image that became the name of a book I wrote. I learned to enter through the image with this painting. And actually, if you look closely, there's a scrap of paper at the bottom of that painting uh, on that altar and it's written kind of in a reversed or backwards uh, enter through the image and i put that there because i experienced that with this painting for the first time and it was revelatory for me
0: so that's that's the book that is called enter through the image right? Mm-hmm.
1: yeah which is a gnostic uh, uh fragment that it, ex- it, it appears in one of the gnostic texts the gospel of philip
0: right exactly Uh, let's come to that uh, part a little bit later because i'd like to follow your your artistic career a little bit now at the moment because we have started with that painting right now and then your studies um carried you further on uh, to said to vienna at first and i think there you also made quite important it was it at that time that you met already those people that influenced your art a lot for later on or was that at the later stage
1: that was later but the year i spent in vienna at the age of uh how how old was i now i forget Uh, at the age it was 30 years ago so i was 28 yeah Mm -hmm. and i discovered this movement, which is called the Vienna school of fantastic realism. So I discovered these painters, which had a huge influence then on my world view as an artist, but I didn't manage to meet any of these people until a good 10 years uh, later in life. So the seed was planted at that time.
0: Mm hmm. Um, So let's come back to fantastic realism a bit later when you return to Vienna in your life, so to speak. Um, So what happened after Munich? So you met you met Gnosticism and you met your future wife there. And how did it all develop in your in your uh, mind expansion? Let's put it that way. Mm
1: -hmm. Then it was a process of putting the pieces of the puzzle together. The anyone who knows esoteric studies, knows that it's like going deeper and deeper down a rabbit hole with many turnings and finding connections between things. So for me, the Gnostic texts, which are basically called the Nag Hammadi library, which is a collection of texts that were found in the desert. We can call it the deserts of Egypt uh, Mm -hmm. outside of a town called Nag Hammadi it's you know you can fit it all into one decent sized book but it's such a dense book because it's fragmented and it has many different gospels or what are called apocalypses or apocryphons and the style of writing changes dramatically the language is very unique so i started to go down the rabbit hole of reading the nag hamadi library And that was a process that absorbed me for many, many years. And one of the results of that was the writing of a novel called The Hidden Passion. And that novel, which basically gives the life of the Gnostic Christ, the writing of that novel was my attempt to create a coherent worldview of what Gnosticism is. And you mentioned this lecture that I have on YouTube, which is... Become quite popular, it seems. And that's also my attempt to create an, a coherent worldview of Gnosticism. And let me say that this is no easy thing for anyone because uh, there are many interpretations of what Gnosticism is. Oh, of course, yes. Yeah, because it's <laughs> such a varied, such a diverse, such a. a um, and also. Coming from the same period as the development of like Alexandria in the first, second, third centuries, so you had hermeticism, you had alchemy, you had theurgy, you had all these fascinating movements going on in Alexandria at the same time. Mm-hmm. And you can approach Gnosticism through theurgy, through the magical magical side, or you can approach it through Hermeticism and see its contrast to Hermeticism and and, and so on. And and Neoplatonism as well, which sees this divinity as a oneness in a philosophical sense. All of these angles onto Gnosticism make it uh, endlessly fascinating.
0: you 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 read me before because I had written down a question while you were talking a bit earlier. Um, which Gnosticism did you mean? Because of, as you just said, Gnosticism is so multifaceted. I would say even today uh, the word is used in so many meanings even nowadays um, that it is hard to pin it down um you mentioned just a few approaches but you could start that with safety and the valentinian Gnosticism at the very early stage etc etc but what is your gnosticism where would you um place if you can your own experience with it what is it to you how do you approach it mm-hmm. i think
1: the text which became this this main source text for me is the one that's called the apocryphon of john and the apocryphon of john which appears four different times we have four different recensions that have come down through history so it was obviously a very important text and it's considered to be sethian if you want to uh categorize it but Mm -hmm. Uh, a Sethian text that was perhaps Christianized and also it had influences from other traditions, something called the Pranoia hymn or Pranoia tradition, which is uh, a goddess figure like Sophia, like wisdom, which was then taken and integrated into the text. And Christ took over a lot of uh, the the voice of this wisdom figure in that text. So it's very confusing and fascinating at the same time. But what I love about the apocryphon of John is first, as I described, it talks about divinity as a oneness. And basically uh, to describe it very quickly, I use the image of the mirrored sphere of the cosmos, that divinity is like this divine eye, which opens its eye at the beginning of time and sees And it's Lawrence, mm -hmm. if you want
0: to, you have time. You can expand on that a little bit if you wish. So so do do feel free to do that. Okay. I'm.
1: It's such a large subject, but I would like to get to some of the more interesting and essential points. Okay, yeah. Sure. And so uh, this does happen in the Apocryphon of John. It's, it begins with a creation myth and the creation myth of the Apocryphon of John, which Apocryphon means the hidden revelation or the secret teaching. So the secret teaching is that divinity opened its eye, saw, and as its vision proceeded like a light from its eye it started to get reflections of itself and the cosmos that then appeared within its vision was reflective. And this happens on the level of consciousness as well, where it, it, begins by becoming conscious or having a thought divinity, but the thought it has is of itself. And so it becomes not just conscious, but self-consciousness. So this is what I mean about the divine eye in the mirrored sphere of the cosmos, that Mm -hmm. everything which divinity sees, sees as a unified reflection of itself, even though there are many, many reflections. Now, what happens is that uh as these emanations happen, they get further and further away from divinity and they start to fall more and more into matter. And it is uh, perhaps well known in Gnosticism that the decisive step is after God the father is created and God is the mother and then the Christ is created. And around the Christ, there are 12 forms of thinking or mind around Christ, including wisdom. And wisdom is a personified figure. It's a, it's like a goddess and wisdom or Sophia. She's the one who takes the next step in creation. And she's the one who then has a thought without the approval of the divine parent and her thought creates basically darkness, matter and evil in the cosmos. And this Mm -hmm. becomes personified as Yalta Ba'as, which is a lion faced serpent. So anyone who picks up one of the Gnostic texts and especially this one and starts reading about, you know, a, 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 uh, and, and Yalta Bas is the Archigenitor or Demiurge. He then creates the material cosmos, including the seven invisible planets, the four elements or five elements, if you include the quintessence, and mm-hmm. he creates all of material existence. So the Gnostics have a very negative or, or uh even a a conspiracy theory view of the universe because for them the physical world of that we see the material world is the world that's being pulled over our eyes to to deceive us as to the true nature of things and this higher divinity that i described to as a oneness is hidden And occulted, you know, if we use the word occult, which means which comes from the word vision, oculus, you know, that that we it's what we cannot see or what is uh, beyond our sight, let's say so. Uh, true divinity is we are blind to true divinity and we are being blinded by this evil demiurge called Yalta Baas. It's a fascinating worldview. And uh, if you're paranoid like me, it suits very well your, your <laughs> perception of the world, which uh, is being more and more confirmed as I get older. I, I try to maintain a balanced view. I'm also very interested in alchemy and hermeticism which balances me out a little bit but gnosticism allows me to pursue my darker side and uh, don't forget that gnosticism is also a heresy it was condemned as a heresy by the catholic church yeah. and so it is like the shadow side of christianity the darker side of christianity that was rejected which
0: makes uh, it i'd even say it was already in pre-christian times that just at the edge of Christianity, it was already a heresy even to other other creeds somehow, because that negative view on, so to speak, negative view on the material side of our world, in the Qliphos, in the Kabbalah, for example, it is very clearly reflected. It was always a kind of a mystic heresy, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that's what contrasts it with Hermeticism. Although, yeah. when you read the Corpus Hermeticum, they seem to take both sides sometimes, that the cosmos is beneficent or benevolent in most of the hermetic texts. But at times, there is this fate that rules over us in the hermetic texts. And Gnosticism is very much like that, that we are fated by the turning of the planets and we don't have, well, we have free will, but we have to really fight to, to maintain our free will in a cosmos that's almost directed against us
0: right and how does that well what would you call it for yourself gnosticism is this a belief is this a creed even or is it just a knowledge you have (laughs) or what what is it it, it, that's
1: exactly coming to the sense of the word gnosis the greek word and gnosis is knowledge but a very distinct form of knowledge experiential knowledge and i would go so far as to say mystical revelation that i i think when the gnostics were speaking of a state of gnosis they meant not just factual knowledge of the existence of things or even knowledge of certain passwords to get you through the cosmos as you reascend but um mystical knowledge that you those who are Gnostics share that core mystical experience of divinity, and they are seeking the language to express that core mystical experience. And that's the substance of all the Gnostic texts.
0: Mm-hmm. And how and Please try in the answer to avoid your artistic work as an answer for the moment, because I know it's part of the answer. But let's talk about the other part before we get to the arts afterwards. How does your knowledge, your Gnosticism influence your daily life? How does it interfere with what you do every day apart from the arts? We come into that later.
1: Mm hmm. Oh, definitely. It shapes my worldview. And in my daily life, I maintain this idea that I am a particle of divine light and that the world I see around me is really just a reflection of my consciousness. And the people I meet, for example, I really I don't say that I create these people, but I say that these people enter my, my field of awareness, my field of consciousness for a reason. And so I have to constantly be open and aware to why these people are coming into my sphere of awareness and what they have to teach me and uh, about myself and about the world in general. So I, I do maintain this, this, viewpoint that uh the world itself is a mirrored sphere to your existence at all times and Mm -hmm. our ego is yalta our ego is that which uh blinds us to greater knowledge and if i say meet someone and and my ego uh, and and the gnostics created a very good Model or a psychology to describe all this, you know, they, they, um, they have a model of humanity called the Anthropos, and they show how humanity is a three, has a three part structure. We are body, we are soul, but your soul is like the seed of the passions, and so it's your emotional body. And then there's spirit, which is mind and these are constantly interacting with each other so i have my bodily needs i have my passions and i have my thoughts and if i encounter someone which one of these gets activated? What becomes my center? How do I interact with people from from the body, the needs of the body, from the needs of the soul, the emotional needs, or from the needs of the mind and the spirit? So so a Gnostic is constantly interacting in these ways and they've got plenty of beautiful images to accompany daily life. Uh, The most interesting one probably being something called the Garment of Light. And this is given to you in a ceremony, in a ritual. But once you are baptized, you are given the garment of light and you wear it for the rest of your life. And the garment of light both protects you and it becomes your image. Uh, It's really like the image of Christ that you're projecting outward onto the world, Christ and Sophia. So, your garment of light is uh, on the one hand protective against evil influence, but on the other hand is like a vehicle in which you're able to move through existence and and uh, show your light, basically is show your light nature to to others without thinking too highly of yourself. <laughs> 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 hopefully. <laughs>
0: Gnosticism and the arts, a highly interesting combination, I think, and I think that Lawrence has really interesting things to say, uh, to tell us. Right now, it's time for our musical break, and as I said, music is taking a little bit more space today. The next piece that we're going to hear will last almost eight minutes, and it is highly inspirational music again, but this time from the Orthodox churches, from the Greek Orthodox Church, actually. Well, I think so. It's Greek because the text is Greek and it is called Agni Partene, which is actually a hymn that was inspired by an Orthodox saint of the 19th century. And it means... um, it means Agnipertene means something like a Virgin Maiden, so it's to as a hymn to Saint Mary. But um uh, I find that type of music so highly inspirational, completely independent actually from what the background the Christian and the Christian Orthodox background is. So it's to me uh, really meditative music and especially in that version that we hear it sung by the Valam Brethren Choir, um, I find it a really wonderful, wonderful piece and maybe you just leave the music on and go at the meantime to the website of Florence Caruana and look at those pictures even if they are not at all inspired by the Orthodox Church. but. Um, I think looking at those images and have that music in your ears at the same time can be quite a nice experience. Well, whatever, if you want to just listen to the music that's just as well, now you're going to hear Agni Partene, uh, Orthodox hymn sung by the Valam Brethren Choir. Thank you orthodox hymn of on a text from the 19th century sung by the Valam Brethren Choir wonderful piece of music I think ok let's go back right away to talk again to Lawrence Caruana about arts and Gnosticism about his idea of creating a Gnostic chapel with his art he will also explain us a little bit where you can find the equivalent of the fantastic realism and visionary art in North America. It's very well represented nowadays also over there, of course. And uh, as we were talking so far more about the European side, you guys might be interested to hear also where in North America this art form can be found and seen. And well, Do you believe in previous lives? Um, Well, that's a question I asked Lawrence as well. We'll see what he has to say about that. After the interview, of course, there is, as always, music again. And as you already know by now, in this episode, music takes a bit more room. And we're going to hear another very inspirational kind of music. So if you want to watch those images again and listen to that music, that's of course also fine. It's an incantation, an incantation by someone that we have already had uh, two or three times uh, on the South Hermes podcast with her music. It's Heather Dale, a Canadian artist. And she has recently I played one of her pieces in that new style already a few weeks ago. She has recently decided to present uh, a series of pieces which are called incantations. And um, so they are really there also to listen to them in a bit of a meditative way. Um, the piece we are going to hear lasts eight minutes and 26 seconds. So take your time. And it is called rite of passage. Right. And after the rite of passage, we have passed into the final announcements and where I will also announce the next show, of course. So if you're interested, you will be our guest in episode 22. You should stay right until to the end, because that's where you're going to hear it. OK, but for now, we go back and speak again to Lawrence Caruana. Let's step a little bit into the arts, but taking what we just heard with us there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and into your art, of course. So now we have to find a way to explain maybe a little bit further to our audience before you go into your personal application of Gnosticism or of of your personal worldview into your arts work. And um, you have to bring us a little bit back on those years that came then when you re- to Vienna I guess that was a very crucial point when you really met those artists in fantastic realism and and started learning from them if I may say so also and developing your own vision in arts through their teachings right mm-hmm.
1: so We left off. I had studied for a year in Vienna, and I had discovered something called the Vienna School of Fantastic Realism, which is a post-war movement uh, well known in Austria, but really all of Europe, which had five important members, uh, Ernst Fuchs, Adrit Brower, Rudolf Hausner, Anton Lehmden, and Wolfgang Hütte. The one who had the strongest impact on me was Ernst Fuchs and indeed after my study year in Vienna even though I had never met him his art had such an impact that I continued to dream of him and dream of meeting him and it was a strange series of interconnected dreams where where one would end up on end off the other one would start again and uh, in these series of dreams I actually eventually after many, many attempts uh, met him in person because I felt like he held the secret to a knowledge of the classical techniques of painting. Mm -hmm. And then it happened finally in my life. And this is after I would say 10 or 12 years of painting on my own and working on this painting. I described Christ alchemist trying to teach myself these classical techniques. I finished that painting And through a mutual acquaintance, another artist, Andrew Gonzalez, as well as uh, Amanda Sage, I received the invitation to go to the south of Austria and work in a chapel where Ernst Fuchs was basically depicting the book of the apocalypse on the walls of this chapel in Klagenfurt in the south of Mm -hmm. Austria. That was in the summer of 2000. And I brought Christ Alchemist with me down to the chapel to basically show him that's what artists do. You know, you, you, you kind of say, look, here's where I'm at. And that was a pivotal movement because he looked at that painting and he really saw something and he saw something that touched him. And he just turned and said to me, you must come and work with me. And this was quite exceptional because he was a very well-known artist in Vienna. At this point, he was, rich and had a large studio in Monaco, as well as working on these chapel projects in Austria and so on. So he basically invited me to come and work with him uh, in his large studio in, in, on the outskirts of Monaco. And he had another one in the city of Monaco itself. My wife came, accompanied me. She worked as his personal secretary. And that was a turning point in my life because now here I am, someone born in Toronto, landed in Europe, uh, married to a French woman, but living in Paris at the time. I was living in Paris at the time and now has the invitation to work with a Viennese master in Monaco. So that's what happened. And Surprisingly, when I first stepped into his studio uh, in Castillon, which is outside of Monaco in this large villa on top of a, you have to imagine a kind of a, not a mountain, but a very high tiered hill in these rocks that go up from the Mediterranean on the coast of uh, the Mediterranean coast of southern france that uh, i stepped into this villa in the huge studio and uh, it was exactly as i pictured it in my dreams or i'd seen it in my dreams so this this was very strange and i realized and i asked him about this and he said yes that uh he has met people in the dream sphere so so this was a revelation to me and i have to say that it wasn't just a question of learning techniques, classical techniques of painting, although that was extremely important. But also he broadened my vision. He broadened my way of seeing, of looking at a painting and understanding art and knowing and to paint a painting, sometimes you, you have to be able to see things that are really beyond your regular ways of looking at the world and he is a fantastic realist he uses colors and forms and styles which are beyond anything that you would see in the in the natural world and uh it's, it's he really is uh, although we say fantastic realist he's a visionary he's a prophet and so i learned from him how to see the world in a visionary way how to to kind of transform my way of seeing so it was a very profound uh, experience being with him for a year Uh, it ended up being one year in total and it was a transformational year i'm the one who decided after that year that i kind of needed to go on my own and continue my path as an artist because he's such a powerful personality that it was very easy to become subsumed under his personality so so to maintain a sense of my own identity as an artist i then continued on my own path after one year but it was a very important year obviously
0: uh, right and um- let's talk a bit more about uh, uh, the art itself, not your art yet. We're coming to that. But um, uh, I think the term visionary art we had that already a little bit earlier is a term that is maybe not common, but it is uh, rather well known and it's the type of art that tries to transcend the physical world through a wider vision of awareness, I would say, and to to uh, include spiritual experiences, mystical experiences into artistic expression and into the result of artistic artistic expression. So could you maybe expand on that a little bit and what that means to you and and how maybe through that your own experience through dreams gnosticism and your further interest into uh, into the esoteric world influences your art and how that process works in general
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, First of all, you did an excellent job in describing what visionary art is. I I think that the word visionary, it's true that we use it to mean having visions of the future. And it is strange how often when we make a painting, we end up putting images that we don't quite understand. And then in the future, we realize that they have a kind of oracular or the ominous kind of Meaning. So there's that sense. But for me, visionary art and this practice of visionary art is really about going deep, deeper, and deeper into inner seeing, inner sight, or otherworldly sight. And there are practices that can be developed to do this. Uh, one practice which my wife follows because she's since become a visionary artist over the last seven years is inner journeys where she closes her eyes and purposely goes on a journey with a guide and the guide uh, indicates things to her. And through the journey with the guide, she's able to see things and understand things. My approach is or my technique is different. I do meditations on images. I do contemplations on images. And think of a Buddhist tanka, think of a Byzantine icon, think of a visionary work of art. To, To me, they all have the same purpose, which is they allow us to center our vision on a point and this one pointedness, this, this extended contemplation for at least 15 minutes or so on one point suddenly puts the mind into another space. Mm -hmm. And for me, then the painting stops being a painting and starts becoming a vision. So it's no longer a flat surface. It's no longer bounded by its frame. The colors are no longer the physical colors that we see in the paint. Rather, the painting becomes a doorway, and I see through that doorway into the visionary world. And I know this sounds very amazing and fantastic, but it's like any form of, of uh, spiritual practice that, that it just happens through extended spiritual practice. So by doing that, I'm able to go on my own vision journeys through works of art. And the the painting in front of me becomes the start of the journey. But then once I'm in, I can start to explore and have ideas and connections and, and new insights. And I'm like any journey. If you go in with an intention, if you go in with a question or even a series of questions, you'll start to receive unexpected answers and insights. And that is an important part of my practice as a visionary artist, because one painting then leads to the next painting, which leads to the next painting. So it becomes just a series of going through doorway after doorway after doorway as as each painting opens to the next one, opens to the next one,
0: opens to the next
1: one. And it's it's a fascinating practice uh, once you discover it, which
0: <laughs> I, I'm sure. But I, I I just correct me if I see that wrongly. But I wouldn't see your the result of your paintings, right? What what then is the final? product so to say as an illustration of your personal development it's rather a vehicle to your personal uh, development or, or yeah how?
1: It, but it's a it's a combination of many things as mm-hmm. an artist i get uh, invited to exhibit on certain themes and so i often have to make a painting on a certain theme so yeah there's so. these external influences that happen as well in any painting there's both the internal and the external meeting each other so when you look at my development as an artist there's both um, the needs uh, uh, of the external world and fulfilling those needs while pursuing my own inner journey through through art and uh, i have to say also a dialogue with the other artists in history every time i discover a new artist that teaches me something i'm 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 a i consider myself not just a um, apprentice to ernst fuchs but also to his masters and his masters are william blake gustave moreau and michelangelo and i've spent so much time journeying through their works and actually having dialogues with them uh, that that my work is constructed in a dialogue with those artists, and I think every artist through history has been doing that is is having a dialogue with other artists as they were painting.
0: Um, uh- Talking about art history, um, surrealism is often seen ca- as a kind of predecessor to to the fantastic realism schools, uh, and um, of course, surrealism is in occult and esoteric circles rather well known as being um, part of it. Let's put <laughs> uh, let's put it that way. To put it bluntly, mm-hmm. to be related to occultism, etc. Um, do you share that opinion? And in in what way does surrealism not only in a historical f- follow up, but in what way is surrealism and fantastic realism or visionary art different from each other in, in its relation to occultism and mm-hmm. and the way of artistic approach? Yeah,
1: I think uh, Andre Breton, who is the pope of surrealism, he progressed as an individual through his life and that magic and the occult started to become more important to him later in life. At the beginning, he was more interested in the chance encounters and the importance of chance and the unconscious, very influenced by Sigmund Freud. And even Freud talks about these kind of things. Uh, fantastic realism remember, emerged in the 50s. Surrealism emerged in the 20s. So the surrealists had at their fingertips the works of Freud just as they were appearing. Mm -hmm. For the fantastic realists, it was the works of Jung Jung. that were just appearing. And uh, Fuchs in particular was very interested in, in each of Jung's writings and more specifically his alchemical writings. And for myself as well, I did definitely uh, read deeply into Freud, into Jung, but also for my generation, it was Joseph Campbell. And so this whole world of mythology that he opened up. So uh, as for the esoteric path, that that's something which emerged more in the underground of popular culture let's say i would mm-hmm. say uh comic books and and films and cinema uh, in, in art itself uh I, it's much more difficult to detect i detected more in comic books in that art form the graphic novel which i find very important mm-hmm. than i would in in art itself but visionary art Definitely all the artists I know today have an esoteric worldview, we, more related to astrology, more related to tarot, more related to um, alchemy, and, and those aspects of esotericism, the Western esoteric tradition are very very important for all of us and it's a very intuitive thing it's just part of our visionary world that the tarot the the you know the 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 movement of the planets all of these things help us to intuit and see signs and move forward through our lives looking at the signs and gaining intuition through all of these things
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well uh, maybe that's the moment to to read two sentences from your manifesto of visionary art and i'd love you to expand on that a little bit that goes in connection with what you just said i believe it says the visual language is a lost language like cyphers undeciphered But it underlies all that we dream each night. So that's kind of a link between the very beginning where you where you spoke about your own dreams. And can you can we expand on on that saying of yours a little bit?
1: Sure. And actually, I mentioned this book of mine, Enter Through the Image. Hmm. And the subtitle is uh, The Ancient image language of myths, art, and dreams. And I've been fascinated by this idea of an iconologic, as I call it, an image language, and that it's possible to think through images, just as we think through words in our conscious thoughts, in our dreams, in our mythologies, our myths, and also in art, works of art, we're invited to think through images. But this image thinking process, it doesn't have the same logic, doesn't share the same structure Mm -hmm. as our, our grammar and our word language, our verbal language. So following trains of thought in imagery and we see this in alchemy all the time for example uh, this is a whole other way of thinking and that's what i mean by it's a lost language because to think in that language i, I do believe that humanity probably had a pre-verbal form of thinking that was very visual and There's an interesting quote from Friedrich Nietzsche, where he says that when we dream, we go through more ancient structures of thinking, more ancient forms of thinking. And I I believe that, uh, and Jung would agree, for example, with the collective unconscious, that, that all of these archetypes within us, these are instinctual embedded, ingrained forms of behavior and thinking, which we have inside of us, and we only access it uh, through, not through conscious thought, but rather in those um, alternative ways of uh, alternative forms of consciousness sometimes a heightened form of consciousness, sometimes just a distracted form of consciousness. Also in madness uh, is another way of in frenzy. And uh, I'm definitely, and the surrealists were as well, definitely fascinated by madness because madness okay. allows that image language to emerge where you become obsessed by, by images or and, and so on. So
0: yeah. Was the use? I'm. I'm not talking about you personally, but in general, in that school, was the use of psychedelics also something that uh, fantastic realism school was using deliberately, not just as fun, but I mean to open awareness further and to get inspiration for paintings
1: definitely Uh, i'll focus on ernst fuchs because uh, he's probably the most interesting example he was having visions with hashish in 1958 which puts him in the generation of the beatniks yeah and he continued along that path for quite a few years so that the 60s and the psychedelic 60s managed to kind of catch up with him. And you Mm -hmm. look at some of his works from 1950, 52, uh, sorry, I got that wrong from 1958, 1960, 1962. Mm -hmm. And you're amazed at how this imagery appears psychedelic In a period that was pre psychedelic, you know, Mm -hmm. once the culture caught up with them in 1966, 67, 68, then they were definitely riding a wave. For us, uh, here we are in the year 2020, cannabis is slowly re emerging in our culture. LSD and other forms is still considered to be against the law or underground. Um, for visionary artists, there's no taboo against pursuing hallucinogens or psychedelics. But um, you, the only taboo, I would say, is to think that visions arise exclusively through psychedelics. That, that uh, when it becomes yeah. this label of, oh, well, everything they do is psychedelic. Yeah, that's yeah, where yeah. the visionary artist starts to step back a little bit and say, no, we have no problem with psychedelics. They're fascinating. But it's not the only door or path leading to right age. yeah They
0: are part, they can be part of awareness, but they are not awareness, so to speak. Right. Right.
1: Yeah. Right. And uh, I used the word hallucinogens because mm-hmm. part of the experience can be hallucinatory. Sure. sure part of it can be revelatory and it's this double edged sword of distinguishing between the hallucination and the revelation which is always a, a difficult thing but but that that is also just you have to accept it uh, that there are in Gnosticism, it's the same thing. There are forces which are tr- of illusion, which are trying to trick you. And there's also the divine, which is trying to reach through and you're trying to reach through the illusion to the divine. So so there's always both sides in the process.
0: Right, right. Now, this is a European podcast, of course, but 85% probably of our audience are North American. Uh, Fantastic realism as such is a very European, even central European naming for an art form. Visionary art is a bit more uh, global. Mm-hmm. But um, how would you guide a North American uh, person who is interested in in seeing that type of art or experiencing more to speak that type of art in North America? What what does he or she have to look for?
1: Mm-hmm. That's where the internet has been our great friend and probably propelled visionary art into a global movement. So there are physical places where you can go and the hubs in the usa are mostly los angeles new york and colorado where there are galleries and for example in new york there's something called the chapel of sacred mirrors by alex and allison gray and they are not just creating a space to house the collection of their own works but also a visionary art in general and uh, so we in Vienna here at the Vienna Academy of Visionary Art, we're also an important place where you could see visionary works of art up close, the actual paintings themselves. Otherwise, there's exhibitions, there's live paintings. It's very active. It's just that it is not... Uh, You won't access it through television or radio. You will access it through podcasts, through internet connections and things like that.
0: You know, we are. But is there the equivalent in North America of that particular? style i hate that word but you know Mm -hmm. what
1: no i would say that uh it's probably strongest in the usa today that there are literally thousands and thousands of young artists doing visionary art in the usa under the label visionary art exactly that name yeah Mm -hmm. i mean some of them might have some issues with the name but it seems to be the best umbrella term that we have for what we're doing
0: yeah right now it is not easy to speak about visionary art to speak about visual arts in general so i once again would really like to invite our listeners to go to uh, the website to maybe best to start at the show notes of this odd of this uh, episode where you will find the link to Lawrence's website to a few other things that I will put there um but uh, uh, thank you Lawrence to have made many things about visionary art and your art very clear also in words. Now, but you're also you also write books and you have written a few books and I would maybe like to conclude our interview today with talk you talking a little bit about that, especially about The Hidden Passion which is your, your big novel, so to speak. And maybe also, if I'm not wrong, there's more to come in what uh, in regards to books and So maybe you can talk a bit about that.
1: Sure. So let's start with The Hidden Passion, which, as I mentioned before, it was my attempt to create a coherent Gnostic worldview in the form of a novel. But what I do with that novel is I actually cite sentences from the Gnostic text, from the Nag Hammadi library. And so it's a huge compilation, actually, of fragments from the Nag Hammadi text, where when Christ opens his mouth, what he says is something taken from the Nag Hammadi text. And the same is true with Mary Magdalene and Sophia and, and so on. So it's, it becomes a fascinating read and it's gotten a great response. I would... Uh, You mentioned also visionary art and the manifesto of visionary art was an important book. It's a small one, but it managed to create a cohesive history because you see the stages from Ernst Fuchs to the second generation of artists like Robert Venosa, who was an American, uh, D.S. Schwertberger, who was an Austrian living in New York. So these connections, uh, Matti Klarwein, another example of a European who ended up in America. And then the, the subsequent generations that was written in the year 2000. So it's now a little bit out of date, but it at least gives the clear picture of the progression of what visionary art is in less than a 100 pages. Um, I would just like to say that uh, since time is limited, that as much as I plan to continue writing, my biggest project on the horizon is to create a chapel, which will depict this apocryphon of John that I mentioned earlier. So the apocryphon of John is a Gnostic text, and it's a very... Uh, well-structured Gnostic text because it shows the creation. It talks about the life of Christ. And then it talks about the dissolution of the world and the ascent of the soul back to the place from whence it came. So the idea behind this chapel, and I'm now in the process of creating large paintings for this chapel, is to be the first person to really give life and imagery and depict the Yaltabaoth, a lion-faced serpent, and Sophia, and and so on. All of these figures that emerge in the Apocryphon of John, I'm fascinated by the idea of being able to give form to that text. So I'm deeply inspired and guided by that one single text, but uh, in the form of creating a space, a chapel, where, where that text can then be seen and read and experienced uh, in images
0: sounds like a really fascinating but also big project right (laughs) it is i was lucky enough to be in your atelier at some point and see the first parts of it so it's really great what you're doing there thank you um i have a final question for you i don't know if you can answer it but i'll give you a try um use you the very beginning so maybe it rounds up a bit our talk today um very beginning you talked about your early dreams and uh, also then the experience in munich it sounds like those things were hidden somewhere and needed to come out. Um, now, with your Gnostic knowledge that you have um, acquired since then, do you believe in previous lives or previous experiences, if you prefer that term, that have brought you uh, to the point where you are today? And is there something to come in a new circ- cycle afterwards? Mm.
1: It's interesting because uh, the Gnostics definitely believe that, or specifically in the Apocryphon of John, they do talk about previous lives. They and certainly
0: how do, yeah.
1: If we don't successfully you know if we fall victim to our own passions then when we try to return to divinity at the end of this life we will be thrown back down as we try to rise past the sphere of say venus if we experience too much lust that sphere won't let us pass and we get thrown back down for another existence and that's almost almost uh, almost a karmic uh, Mm -hmm. view view. yes within Mm -hmm. early christianity absolutely Uh, yes but uh i tend to base my spiritual world view on what i've experienced directly and i cannot say i've had Memories of past lives and things like this—it's it, enough of a struggle for me to remember my childhood. Because when I do manage to recollect my childhood worldview, it is so magical and so outside of what I experience as an adult. I, I, I literally remember traveling to other dimensions as a child for example and i had these specially constructed three-dimensional ladders that i was able to use to go there and it seems so even to speak about it now i understand it seems extremely out there but for me the the just remembering back into my own childhood is fascinating enough and there's enough material there that i can in my meditations and my my as I said, I do this focused concentration on, on paintings when I do that. And I'm allowed to access, uh, childhood memories through that practice. There's so much fascinating material there. That uh, I, I, I've never I, I've been told that it's possible to regress so far back in your memories that you can actually re-experience your birth and re-experience your interuterine memories. And then what happened and then beyond that, let's say to your before your conception and so your previous lives. And I, I, I'm uh, just at the first stages of regression, which is to say regressing back to my childhood. That's as far as right. I'm able to go.
0: Right. Well, thank you. So still lots of work to do on those ends of your, of your being. So, to speak. <laughs> um, uh, But in the end, you, you showed us anyway way that you, like probably most of us have in some way already had those kind of experience still at a very early age already, but we maybe sometimes only realized that many, many years later that it was like that because it all seemed so normal at the time when Mm -hmm. we experienced it.
1: Yeah. If, if everything works out as planned at the moment of my death, I'll remember my way all the back, all the way back to my birth.
0: <laughs> well, okay. Well, take some time to do that. <laughs> well, Lauren, thank you for your time. Thank you for a fascinating talk. Uh, thank you for being so open to our audience. Uh, it was a pleasure to have you with us here today and, uh, Best of luck to you and your new steps in life. We are going to leave Vienna, as I know, uh, uh, which is a, which is a pity, but um, a new step in life comes and that's how it is. And best of luck for that and uh, all the best to you. And thank you for being with us.
1: And thank you, Rudolf. Meeting you has been one of the rare pleasures during my life here in Vienna. During, I've come to the end of my seven years in Vienna, and I met you at the end, which has been a distinct pleasure, so I'm grateful for that. So thank
0: you. Uh, thank you, and goodbye for now. Bye-bye. of passage by Heather Dale from her new series called Incantations, a type of meditative music that she has started to create a few months ago and that I'm presenting to you here on the Thoth Hermes podcast. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Lawrence Caruana and discovered quite a few new things, just as I did. And once again, I invite you to go to the show notes, not only to see the link to the videos that I have talked to you about and that we both talked in the interview about, especially on that on uh, Gnosticism, but also that you can see his art and the art we were talking about, visionary art, Gnosticism and visionary art. That was the title of today's episode and well that's the end also of this episode episode 21 it was of season four of the thoughts Hermes podcast uh thank you for being with us here today thank you also for staying a little bit longer here today because the music also took a bit more room than usual um it was great to have you and i hope i'll see you back again next week when we will present episode 22 to you. And episode 22 will be, no, not yet ex-libris, that is going to be episode 23. Episode 22 will bring us an interview with my guest, Phil Hine. Phil Hine, of course, was a long-time, very important representative also of Chaos Magic. He wrote several books on that but he wrote also a very, very Many texts about other um, about other subjects in the esoteric and occult worlds. He is one really of the great representatives of the 1980s, 90s movements in Great Britain. And you're gonna love his Northern English accent. I'm sure. Okay. Um, yes. Well, and don't forget we were going to talk a lot about tantra as well because that's what Phil Hine is also now highly active and interested in. Good. Well, that was it for today, friends and listeners. I hope you enjoyed. I hope you are going to have a good week until we meet again next Sunday. And for the time being, I wish you all the best and can only say, take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.